This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. For more on the response, we're joined now by Redmond Shannon, our Global News European correspondent. Hello, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. What is the weather situation like there? It's extremely hot. It's like um, stepping into an oven. Um, uh, coming out uh, this morning, uh, or, uh, heading on my bike to the Global News Bureau in uh, in London, uh, the options were quite limited. If I took the underground, the tube as it's known here, I'd be um, in a subway car that is uh, not air-conditioned either. So I decided to cycle and... Uh, it has been uh, quite a quite a uh, hot day. Um, Simi, th- to say the least, the uh, UK is not devoid, d- designed for heat that is like this. Um, schools here uh, operate well up until the end of July. That's quite surprising, but it, um, to, to many people in Canada, perhaps. But uh, the weather here doesn't tend to get that hot in July. It never gets super hot. And buildings here are not designed for temperatures that approach 40 degrees. So some schools are closing early. Some schools are closing. Many are modifying how they're operating. Trains here are running much slower because of worries about the lines buckling. Again, the infrastructure is not designed for temperatures like this. So Train operators are being are telling people only travel if you absolutely need to. That sounds familiar to the co- to uh, people from the from the COVID days, but for a very uh, different reasons. Um, hospitals, many old hospital buildings here are not designed uh, don't have AC because they don't need it most of the time. But more and more, we're seeing temperatures in um, the UK and particularly the southeast of England um, getting so high to cause serious issues for healthcare providers in the UK too. So it's, it's affecting many parts of everyday life. All right, just one more quick question here then, Redmond. Uh, so how are people dealing with this? Are they expecting this to impact the healthcare system? Uh, there must be a lot of health concerns about this. Well, there are that um, uh, extreme heat alert that you mentioned that's been issued for the first time. Now, that system has only been in place for a year, so uh, don't put any stock in that. But it is so, like we are we are going to pro- most likely hit a temperature we've never seen before. The previous record was 2019. And that extreme heat alert issued by the government uh, says that uh, even fit and healthy people are at risk from injury and death. So if you don't take precautions, if you go out, and act like you do in everyday life and try to perhaps exercise or work outdoors, you may be at risk of of injury or worse. So um, the government is issuing warnings, advising people to stay indoors, to stay cool as best they can. But uh, it is uh, uncharted territory, and we may later today or perhaps tomorrow, Simi, see that all-time record of 38.7 degrees broken. It could get as high as 41. Ooh, ouch. All right, Redmond, try to stay cool. Thank you so much for your time. This is Mornings with Simi. Some of the details are just shocking. Almost 400 law enforcement officials rushed to the scene of that school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. But according to this new report that is out, systemic failures mean that it was more than an hour before the gunman was finally confronted and killed. This is a nearly 80-page report that has been obtained by uh, many media outlets, and it's the first to criticize both state and federal law enforcement. Now, Chris Fox is a CBS reporter in Uvalde, Texas, who has been reading through this report and joins us now. Chris, thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. You've read the whole report. Now tell us, Chris, what really struck you in reading this? What did you find? Well, 
the fact that there was no one in charge, that, that like you said, there were 376 officers from 24 different agencies that converged on Rob Elementary School the morning of the shooting, and no one was in charge. Now, according to ALERT, which is the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, which both the uh, Uvalde School District Police Force had, had received, as well as the Austin Police Department, I mean, the uh, Uvalde Police Department had received, um, established that the school district police chief was the incident commander, but he said he wasn't. And he said when he arrived that the uh, uh, Uvalde police were already on scene and didn't consider himself the incident commander, but considered himself more of a <laughs> excuse me, first responder. And that led to the problems. No one was running the show. Also, a lack of communication, radio communication, even inside the hallways between officers on the north end and officers on the south end. They didn't know what each other was doing. So to give you an example... The officers on the north end had received word that there were 911 calls coming from inside the classroom. The officers on the south end, which included uh, uh, the school district police chief, Peter Adondo, did not know that. Peter Adondo was part of the group that was one of the early responders, and they believed that either no children were in those two classrooms or they were all dead. And so they took it as a barricaded gunman situation as opposed to an active shooter. In an active shooter situation, the protocol calls for a, a quick response to breach the classroom and take down the gunman. They didn't do that. There are even reports of uh, Chief Arredondo spending 40 minutes trying to find the keys to the classroom. Um, ironically, the principal had them, but nobody ever asked her. Oh, my goodness. Um, also, the, the, the protocol calls for, if you can't find the keys, break down the door. And they didn't do that. They waited. And uh, they considered themselves a shield or a wall, the police did, between uh, students in other classrooms and the gunman they knew was in that, those two classrooms. And so and the two classrooms were adjoined, so they kind of became one. Um, and so that was part of the reason why they, they waited the 70-plus minutes before they took down the gunman. It, it literally it, it described it as a systemic failures and egregious poor decision-making is a way the report actually specifically describes the law enforcement response it's also interesting to, to see what I think one of the most damning quotes is law enforcement failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. Oh, wow. Now, I know this is a, an investigative investigated committee from the Texas House of Representatives that put together this report and it was released. It was obtained, I guess, by media outlets. So what has the reaction been to the publication of this report? It's been released. It was it was released to the family members starting at 830 yesterday morning family members started arriving at the Uvalde Civic Center to receive a hard copy of it. And we did get a chance to talk to some of them who uh, most that we spoke with were angry that there wasn't enough accountability, that perhaps we were finding that there's systemic failures, but they wanted to see people fired, laid off. Now, eventually, uh, the interim police chief uh, was given administrative leave later in the afternoon by the mayor of Uvalde, uh, Don McLaughlin. But, uh, um, at the end of the press conference yesterday, the press conference kind of ended abruptly yesterday because members of the committee uh, were going to attend a memorial mass uh, held by the archbishop. And that did not sit well with the family members who still had questions to be asked. Now, strangely, in this press conference, media were the only people allowed to ask questions. So it was really common to see family members getting up from their front row seats and walking back to the members of the media saying, please ask this question or please ask that question. So at the end, uh, there was a lot of people shouting 
at, at the committee members cowered and, and, uh, uh, and they wanted they wanted more. And, and this report wasn't enough. Right. And there are more reports to come, though, are there not? Yes, we're still looking at the I think the main one is Texas Rangers and the FBI. And that was the one after some of the original early reports were so off. Uh, that was the that those were the two groups that were, were assembled to, to put together uh, primarily the, the main investigation. So, yeah, we're yet to yet to see the results of that. So far, though, this is the most comprehensive and most fact filled. And that was one of the things that. Chairman Dustin Burroughs, who heads the committee, said mm-hmm. that they weren't there to actually give recommendations. This was nothing more than literally an accumulation of facts of what happened. Right. Shocking facts, too. Chris, thank you so much for that. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I was saying earlier that I, I really noticed over the weekend in a couple of different places that I was in, more people are masking up. And, you know, we are in yet another wave of COVID. Lots of people, I'm sure you out there, you know people who've either tested positive or are dealing with the effects of that right now. And it means that there is more coming too. What should we be bracing ourselves for? COVID cases are on the rise right across the country. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director of the Vancouver Infectious Diseases Centre, back with us this morning. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. What is the COVID situation like right now? It does seem a little pretty bad out there. Well, it never really went away. And I think that uh, we possibly let our guard down There are more cases now than there were a few weeks ago, but this is something we'll be able to handle. If everyone gets their third shot, million or so British Columbians still need to do that. Stay home if you're sick. Have a mask on you, as you just described. Keep washing your hands. And COVID will not go away, but we can sort of keep it at a manageable level if we do a few simple things. Okay, and I know many people believe that, well, if you get it once and you have some protection against reinfection, but is that the case with these variants? It seems less and less so, especially if your last vaccination was more than three months or so ago. They are more immune evasive, the BA5 in particular, meaning that the vaccine provides less protection and certainly less over time, and you certainly can get COVID again and again. Okay, so which variant are we dealing with right now? Well, we don't necessarily know because we don't count it that way in, uh, in British Columbia uh, in a way that, uh, that gives us that, that real data. But we think it's all BA5, BA4, BA5, the newest derivatives of the, uh, of the Omicron strain. You said that we don't count it that way here in BC. Is that different from the way other provinces approach this? Well, in Ontario, they seem to be keeping better tabs on what strain is circulating. Here in British Columbia, it's unclear to me, at least from reports, whether we uh, we do so. But we're not going to be very different from the rest of North America. And in places where they do count it a bit more accurately, it is all BA5. So I would assume that. Okay. And what do we know about BA5? Well, it is the one that seems to evade the vaccine more effectively than some of the others. It is probably more transmissible. I heard an American commentator say that it was as transmissible as the measles, and that, that's, that's over the top. It isn't that transmissible, but it is easier to catch. And again, if you haven't gotten your third shot, you are very, very susceptible to it. So I'm talking to the million of British Columbians who haven't made up their mind to get their third shot. Do you, next, th- uh, do you feel yeah. that people are starting to uh, perhaps take this a little bit more seriously again, like with the masking up? Is, is that reconsideration of the third shot happening? 
Not as of yet, and probably because we haven't been out there promoting the third shot, I think, as effectively as we could have. The discussions about vaccines recently from Minister Dix have been about planning for the fourth shot in the fall. But a fourth shot isn't as effective in people who have only gotten two shots, especially if that second shot is now a year or more in the rearview mirror. So I think we need to be out there this month. Everyone who hasn't had their third shot should get it. Those who are eligible for their fourth shot should still get it this month in anticipation of what would then be their next shot, the new bivalent vaccine in the fall. Would it help, do you think, Dr. Conway, to start reporting the numbers again in B.C.? It could, but right now the problem is we don't even test well enough for that number to be reliable. I think the one reliable number we're getting is hospitalizations. We're counting those. And as those go up, I think that should be promoted without making people panic. But it would remind them COVID is still there. We're seeing more COVID in the hospitals than we did last week, last month. So here are the things that you need to do, including getting your third shot, having that more in people's minds, in people's consciousness, in their faces, I think would help. Yeah, I've recently talked to a couple of people who are dealing with positive cases of this, and it really, to them, they describe it as as a flu, which seems a little bit more serious, I feel like, than what we were hearing a month or so ago. Oh, absolutely. And I think that this is the effect of people who are under-vaccinated getting reinfected. If your vaccines are up to date, if you've had your three or the four that you're entitled to, then by and large, COVID-19 will be a mild illness. If that is not the case, then you risk a more serious case of infection, which could look like the flu and obviously is leading to several hundred hospitalizations in British Columbia. So you mentioned that all the kind of information that we're getting from health officials right now seems to be focused on four shot and this fall, what we're going to do this fall. Uh, do you wish they deal with it right now? Yeah, I mean, there's still a million British Columbians who are eligible for their third shot who haven't gotten it. For a while there, I was hearing that, thank God, COVID is over. I'm hearing that less. And I, I really think what you're what you're seeing with the masks, I see that too. People are starting to remember that COVID is around. But I think the government should play a role in promoting that uh, third shot, making sure that we're as ready as we can for the fall and the next shot that it will be for most people. Okay, so then, Dr. Conway, what do people need to remember about this particular wave that we are dealing with? You have the power to control it. Stay home if you're sick. If your friend is sick, send them home. Have a mask in your back pocket. Keep washing your hands. And whatever number of vaccines you're eligible to get right now, run, don't walk. Go get your vaccines. Be part of the solution so that we can have as stable a fall as as we can. All right, Dr. Conway, thank you as always. Always a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. You are hearing a lot this morning about the healthcare system, and that's because there are a lot of concerns. Many small communities around BC are worried about the state of their hospitals, the state of their emergency rooms, because they are facing these unexpected closures. Take the community of Clearwater, for instance. Uh, They were not expecting it to be closed this past weekend, but it turns out the emergency department at their hospital there was closed again due to staffing shortages this weekend. That has become incredibly concerning, and they're not always getting enough notice about the impact of this either. Joining us now is Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater. Mayor Blackwell, thank you for being here. 
Good morning, Simi. Glad to be here. Now, were you aware of this latest closure? Like, are they being good about informing the community about these closures? Oh, this is the hard part. Um, usually, we don't hear until three thirty, four o'clock before a 6 o'clock in the evening closure for an ER uh, closure. There's a protocol for doing that, and, and the protocol basically pushes that timeline. Um, the, the really concerning one this weekend was the Saturday and tonight clo- or Sunday closures. Um, the Saturday closure was announced on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Uh, via press release. Uh, the only reason I found out about it because I heard word that an ambulance actually arrived at our hospital sometime overnight on Saturday, Sunday, um, only to find out that the, the ambulance crew found out at the hospital doors that the RER was closed and had to divert to Kamloops, which is completely unacceptable, to say the least. Yeah, no kidding, completely unacceptable. For the paramedics not to know, that seems ridiculous. How much of a diversion is that? How many hours are we talking about? You're talking another hour and 20, hour and 30. Um, The problem also lies that once those paramedics get there, they're at Royal Inland and Kamloops, which has major delays as well. They could be sitting with a patient for hours and hours, outside uh, Royal Inland before they can even get them inside, and then the wait for that patient can be hours uh, once they're inside the emergency at uh, Royal Inland. I'm also hearing an incident from Ashcroft last night um, that uh, a patient next to the ambulance station couldn't be picked up because there was no ambulances available in Ashcroft last night, uh, a woman apparently having a heart attack. So this crisis is is hitting really deeply and and it's very concerning for our local citizens. Now, have you been meeting with Interior Health, Mayor Blackwell? And and I'm sure you've been raising these concerns. So what do they say? Well, they are working on it. I'm going to give them some credit that they are trying to bust open the systems that are causing a lot of this, that are causing a lot of stress for staff. Because all of this boils down to quality of life issues, workplace, uh, work-life balance, and things like that for the people that are doing these jobs, for the nurses and doctors. My, my sister's an LPN in Williams Lake, uh, nurse manager, and, you know, I've been hearing subtly about this for years, but also from all the, the medical professionals around town. They, they really don't have a work-life balance that the rest of us can en- enjoy on a regular basis. And uh, with COVID, that's just coming to you know, quite, uh, you know, ahead. So what what have you asked Interior Health for here? Is this, obviously they can't recruit overnight. So what do you think needs to happen? Well, they're going to have a job fair this week. Um, really, there's enough nurses in, around our area that if they can fix the workplace environment, um, fix the shifting and the scheduling, which is a huge concern for the small areas, uh, shifting is is not done locally. It's done out of Kamloops or Kelowna. Um, and then incentivize. Um, at this particular point, we're going to need to sweeten the deal for some people to come back to work and to do these shifts until we can stabilize. Once we get stabilized, and our Clearwater situation, we're short four RNs with emergency room uh, certification. That's all we're missing. We're missing four people. Four people, if I get three of them, we can probably stabilize the situation here. Um, But we also need to work on the quality of life for lab techs and x-ray techs. Those people, if you're in a small town, there's one person for that job. So you're basically on permanent on-call. And that's not a great way to live. Nobody wants to sign up for that, especially in these days. So when you say improve their quality of life, like how do you suggest they do that? So they need to look at the schedule. They need to look at making, uh, for example, Alberta does a cross-trained x-ray tech lab tech position. 
So the person can do both jobs. If you had two people doing that job, then they could cover each other off so that they get days off, so that they're not on call through the evenings where, you know, I, I curled with the lab techs. They never made a full game because they were always getting called back to the hospital to do work. Same goes with the doctors. Um, you know, the RN system, um, it's a lot about how do you schedule the hospital so that there's enough coverage so that people are comfortable coming in um, and covering these shifts without feeling like they're coming into a disaster. And, you know, Clearwater is a beautiful place. Um, 2,400 people have Wells Gray in our backyard, a lake to swim in the middle of town. When people get here from the lower mainland to live, they love it here. And so it's really not about, you know, the, the living remotely. It's about the conditions of the work environment. Now, these things that you're talking about, Mayor Blackwell, they don't, they don't sound like huge asks, really. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I, I published about 11 things that were mostly suggestions from doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals on my Twitter feed about a week or so ago, and, and that was the comments that came across on most of them. This isn't hard, but what it is hard is for healthcare system that is deeply entrenched in a way of doing businesses. business. We saw that pivot under COVID. We need that pivot to happen again. We need to see change happen at a rapid pace and I am getting early indications from the IH sort of middle management that I am meeting with and speaking to it with on a regular basis that they are willing and are doing some of those changes. Um, but, you know, this problem is very large. This is, this is a, not just a BC problem. This is not just an interior health problem. This is a Canada-wide, worldwide problem right now. Um, but, you know, the simplest solution is get all those people with the medical training out there that are still young, that have opted out of working and get them to come back to the workplace. Make it a nice place to work so they consider um, using their nursing degree to actually nurse instead of do something else with their lives. Have you had a chance to talk about this with the health minister? I have not. I'd love to have that conversation, but you know, that guy's a very busy guy. Um, I did discuss it with um, uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Nathan Cullen a couple weeks ago. He was very receptive. I handed him a letter from one of our local doctor outlining a lot of these issues issues locally here, and he accepted that, and and Premier Horgan actually uh, commented from that letter the next day on radio. So, you know, the message is getting to Victoria. I'm, I'm not concerned about that so much as, you know, let's get the reaction time on making some of these changes, and let's you know, nothing is off the table here. Let's let's put every idea on the table and let's make it workable. Have you gotten that impression from Interior Health, like that they feel also that nothing is off the table? Like, are they willing to implement some of these things that you've talked about? Um, a lot of these are actually things that have come internally from them um, through some of their managers, some of them off the record, some of them, you know, through that way. I think it's just breaking open in the last three, four months that this is you know, to be considered at this point, um, that anything is an option. Um, up till now, I didn't have that feeling. It was very entrenched and very defensive until last fall. All right. So hopefully things change. So if you can get past this weekend, is it, is it going to be more of the same, do you think, for the summer? No, I, I have a feeling that the scheduling issues are going to be solved very quickly. And I'm kind of really hoping that we get some help here in the near future. But they have to change their the way they let staff move around the region because that would help um, and then make shifts that people actually want to work. That makes perfect sense to me. Mayor Blackwell, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So much news these days coming from the different levels of government. For instance, people out in Surrey and Langley. I know you've waited a long time to hear that the much-anticipated Surrey-Langley SkyTrain is moving forward. It is scheduled to be completed by 2028. That's just six years away, meaning train service is theoretically going to arrive in Langley earlier than expected. So let's talk about this project and much more of what's going on in provincial politics. Joining us now is Bowen Ma, who's the MLA for North Vancouver Lonsdale and the Minister of State for Infrastructure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. So tell me about this latest agreement then to move this forward. What does this mean for the people out in Surrey-Langley? So what this means for the people of Surrey-Langley is that the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain is a go. The full funding has been confirmed, the business case has been approved, and in addition to building the first major rapid transit project south of the Fraser in in three decades, we'll also be building transit-oriented development around key stations, building a, a new operations and maintenance centre for the line and enhancing active transportation networks throughout the corridors. And all of that means people have more opportunities to live close to uh, where they work, close to public transit, have more choices about how they move around Surrey and Langley. Okay, so what will this do, do you think, to that movement around Surrey and Langley? So rapid transit projects are an amazing opportunity for us to change the way that people are able to envision how they live their lives, because it's not just about moving from point A to point B on a rapid transit line. Uh, It's also about um, having connected communities where you can walk to the grocery store instead of getting into your car and driving 20 kilometers to get a a jug of milk. It's also about having more choices about uh, where your kids go to school, uh, where your kids go to childcare, because the transit-oriented development will also be uh, focusing on delivering those kinds of amenities close to the stations. But for somebody who's going from King George Station all the way into Langley, what it really means is a 22-minute ride. Right. Now, I know that originally this was supposed to be done in two stages, right? The line to Surrey Fleetwood, then the line to Langley. Why has that changed? So the original project that was envisioned in two stages was envisioned by TransLink back in the day when TransLink was going to deliver the project. Now, a lot of things have changed since then. In particular, the pandemic really hit transit services across the province really hard and TransLink, um, their financial position changed. And so in order to deliver this for the people of Surrey and for the people of Langley, the BC government, we have actually taken on the delivery of the project. And when we were looking at the project and doing our due diligence, developing the business case, it turns out we can actually deliver the entire line, 16 kilometers, eight stations, three bus interchanges, all the way into Langley, faster and cheaper if we do it in one go. So that's what we're doing. Right. But are you not worried about cost overruns? Because already this is an incredibly expensive project at what, $3.94 billion? So the project will come in just over $4 billion for everything involved, but it's also an incredibly important project for everyone in Surrey and Langley. We know that congestion is such a huge issue for people living south of the Fraser. And we know the region is growing as well. So we're confident that this is the right project for the region and that it's going to pay dividends well into the future. So when does the province decide to do that, to step in and deliver a project and take it off of TransLink's hands? Because there's a lot of, there's questions as well about some other big projects, right, that TransLink is getting ready to undertake, for instance, like the UBC subway. 
So we talk to TransLink all of the time, and we definitely take uh, a lot of, I guess, a lot of cues from the Mayor's Council as well. Surrey Langley SkyTrain has been on the docket for many, many years, and it was actually intended to be funded through Phase 2 of the TransLink Mayor's Plan, which is currently underway. And so... TransLink, given the uh, what happened over the last few years, we have been in close conversations with them about how we move forward on these projects. Right now, it's Surrey Langley SkyTrain. We're also talking to them about other projects as well. So you don't rule that out, potentially getting involved in other projects? Oh, absolutely not. We are... We're extremely committed to working with the region on delivering public transit throughout the area. But we also know we can't snap our fingers and do it all at once. There's prioritization. There's, uh, you know, strategic planning going on. And all of those things, we uh, work very closely with Transit on. I mean, given that you're the Minister of State for Infrastructure, how challenging is that right now? I mean, you talk about how tight the budget is. We all know that. Obviously, government revenues are being squeezed. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. And yet... There is a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built in this province. You're absolutely right that there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built in this province. And that's the work that we've been doing basically through the last five years. And in fact, through the pandemic, when other jurisdictions saw revenue losses and started to pull back on major key projects that would have made their lives of people in their jurisdictions better, we actually doubled down on investments like healthcare, childcare, public transit. We invested to keep public transit services running right through the pandemic because we knew how important that was, not only to people and families, but also to our, our ability to economically recover. And we are seeing the benefits of those decisions. We are uh, recovering. We're leading the country in economic recovery. And we continue, we intend to continue to deliver those services and that infrastructure for the people of British Columbia. Now, I did think that the press conference for this was quite, you know, interesting and in that they had a bunch of government ministers there and everybody was getting asked the same question. And I know you've been asked this question too, uh, about running for the leadership of the NDP. Now the rules are out and you've seen them. What went into your decision to not pursue this? You know, it was... Uh, an incredibly humbling honor to have so many people ask me to seriously run to be premier of this province. And I don't think that was anything that I ever expected would happen in my life. But the honest truth is, it wasn't that difficult of a decision for me. I knew right away that being premier wasn't for me. And I think fundamentally, I'm, I'm still much more of an engineer than a politician. And the political arena still strikes me as a very weird place to work in. And what keeps me grounded in all of this is being able to connect with and directly serve members of my community in North Vancouver. And I cherish that time. And I know that if I became premier, I would hardly ever be in North Vancouver at all. So it wasn't going to be for me. You said the political arena is a weird place to work in. Why is that? Um, I don't think that it would surprise anybody to know that there's politics in politics. And like I said, I come from the engineering world. Um, I'm a professional engineer. I managed capital infrastructure projects out at the airport before I became an MLA. That's the career path that I was on. And I think a certain way, maybe the way that engineers do. And politics is just a little weird to me. (laughs) They're weird to a lot of people. But how do you feel about the way the race is shaping up? Because people look at this and they go, well, who is getting in this race then? You know, uh, there's a lot of speculation, and I don't think it's fair for me to uh, announce people's candidacy on their behalf. I think that that's going to change in the days and weeks ahead. 
but I did uh, share publicly that I have always looked up to David Eby, no pun intended, uh, and I know him to be someone of immense integrity, who is honest, fair, professional, and brilliant, and I really hope that he does run. Okay, but will there be other candidates too? Uh, I guess we'll find out. Well, you, no chatter around the table, around the caucus there. I mean, I mean, there must be some discussion about this. You know, there's always a ton of speculation around leadership races. There was speculation about me when I never even intended to, con- to seriously consider or like I had already decided a long time ago that I wouldn't be running. So I think at this time, the rules are out. Um, people are able to announce in the days and weeks ahead. I, I think we've got to be a little bit patient and, and just see who emerges. Oh, we're going to definitely be watching for that. Listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care.